As Calvary Baptist Church grows, we need to consider the future and the future when it comes to leadership. And as the flock grows, the need for more shepherds grows. And so as we as a church anticipate God providing for us future elders, we ought to determine what we believe about eldership and ought to establish our understanding of a biblical theology of spiritual leadership. And to that end, what we're going to do for the next few weeks, maybe a couple months, is we're going to focus on what the Bible teaches about elders, what the Bible teaches about spiritual shepherds. And because my motto is, if it's worth doing, it's worth overdoing, uh, we're going to start at the beginning in the book of Genesis. So open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 48. Genesis chapter 48, and this is going to be a topical message, and so I don't expect you to flip around and try to keep up with me, and uh, so Justin's going to help us by putting scripture on the screen, but we can start in Genesis chapter 48. As he lay ill on his deathbed in Egypt, he recounted many of the significant events of his life, and he recognized a consistent theme running throughout all of them. At his birth, striving with his twin brother in the womb, the Lord was with him. When he found himself on the run due to his own sinful deception, the Lord looked over him. While he served his unfair, idolatrous father-in-law, the Lord blessed him and provided for him. When he feared for his life, believing that his brother would seek vengeance against him, the Lord comforted him and protected him. As he journeyed through the lands of hostile nations, the Lord guarded him. When famine threatened he and all of his loved ones, the Lord brought him to Egypt where he found provision. The Lord had provided him with many children. The Lord had rescued his youngest from a murderous plot. The Lord orchestrated an incredible plan to save his entire family from starvation. And the Lord multiplied his descendants all according to the Lord's plan. He had benefited from the Lord's covenant faithfulness his entire life, and he knew it. And in the last moments of his life, as he's reflecting upon all of this, he wells up with thankful praise. We're talking about Jacob. As Jacob considered these things, growing still weaker, he called to his son and his son Joseph and asked for his grandsons Manasseh and Ephraim so that he could pronounce a blessing upon their heads before he passed. As Jacob laid his hands out upon Manasseh and Ephraim, this is what he said in Genesis 48, verse 15 through 16. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all of my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And so as Jacob lay dying on his bed, he's contemplating and reflecting upon all that the Lord had done for him throughout his life, providing, protecting, guiding through everything, through every aspect of his life. And as he thinks about those things, the the best phrase, the best word he could think of to describe the relationship that God had over him throughout his life was that word, shepherd, the God, my God has been my shepherd. And so throughout his entire life, Jacob had experienced the tender, compassionate, merciful watch care of God. 
God had guarded him through danger, guided him through trouble, taught him, corrected him, matured him, protected him from others, and even protected him from himself. Can you relate to that this morning? God guarding and guiding and correcting and teaching and maturing and protecting us even from ourselves. Jacob could look back across his life and see that God lovingly led him just like a shepherd leads sheep. And that's, in his last moments, this is what he wanted to communicate to his sons. The Lord has been my shepherd, and he can be your shepherd too. Shepherd is the divinely chosen moniker or title that the Lord inspired in order to describe the relationship he has with his people. When the Lord would have his people reflect upon his loving watch care over them, he wants their minds to wander to that all-familiar ancient Middle Eastern view of a shepherd leading a flock of sheep. Think about a shepherd and sheep. As a shepherd oversees his flock, he must provide for them. He must protect them. He must give them rest. He must lead them to life-giving water. He's got to lead them to green pastures where they can be satiated. He rescues them when they are under attack. He protects them from danger. He recovers them when they have wandered. He heals them when they are hurt. Certainly that describes the relationship that God has with his people. David understood this. Probably the most quoted psalm in the book of Psalms is Psalm 23, in which David begins, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Like Jacob, David recognized that the Lord was his provider and his protector and his guide. The Lord brought satisfaction and rest to David's soul. He led David to righteous living and through earthly struggles. David's knowledge that the Lord was with him to protect him from his enemies and to correct him from his own sin brought such immense comfort that David could say, I can even face death without fear. Penning these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, David could think of no better metaphor to describe God's relationship to him than what? The Lord is my shepherd. And so, the shepherd, that's the Lord. But what about the sheep? Who are the sheep? Contrary to popular belief, sheep are not dumb. They're kind of dumb. When I wrote that, I thought, well, they're not dumb in the sense that most people think they're dumb, but sometimes they do flip over and they they can't get back on their feet and they need somebody to come and flip them back over again, which seems kind of dumb. But contrary to popular belief, sheep are actually not dumb. It's the fact that they are flock animals. It's the fact that they seem to always follow that some can misinterpret as a lack of intelligence. But in reality, sheep excel in social intelligence. That's necessary as flock animals. Sheep can remember the faces of dozens of their fellow sheep, and they can remember them for years. They have a keen sense of emotional intelligence, which enables them to both express emotion and read the emotion of fellow sheep and even read the facial expressions of a shepherd, which is amazing. 
This helps them build the necessary relationships of mutual cooperation and even friendship that you need in a flock. The emotional sensitivity and social intelligence and relational nature of sheep is what enables them to recognize and to bond with a shepherd, which is an essential relationship considering the needs of the sheep. So where do we get the idea that sheep are dumb? Well, again, the whole flipping over thing. But besides that, vulnerability, their flocking instincts, their need to be led, oftentimes can be viewed as a lack of intelligence, but it's not. And the fact that sheep are defenseless. In order for a sheep to defend themselves, they flock together. So you have more ears and you have more eyes against predators. That's all they've got. They can either flock or they can flee. That's it. Sometimes when a frightened sheep flees from the flock and becomes separated, they become disoriented and they become lost and they need someone, a shepherd, to go seek them out and to recover them. Sheep are also relatively nearsighted. Some of us can relate to that. But they do have an amazing peripheral vision. They can see 300 degrees around them, which is a defense mechanism so that they can see predators coming. But right in front of them is kind of like a blind spot. They have very, they can only see about 20 feet in front of them and really with no depth perception. So you know what that means? It just makes common sense to follow the flock or to follow the lead of a shepherd because the sheep themselves cannot see far ahead and can't see their ultimate destination. Far from a lack of intelligence, the natural instincts of sheep to flee or to flock really seem the most obvious uh, options considering their vulnerabilities. Now listen, a recognition of one's own weakness, the benefits of mutual dependence, the wisdom of following those who have better vision than what you have doesn't really seem like stupidity, does it? It seems like intelligence. And so that's the shepherd, that's the sheep. And when we think about the nature of sheep, it helps us understand their need for a shepherd. A shepherd provides vision where the sheep cannot see, provides protection where the sheep cannot defend themselves, provides rescue when the sheep find themselves in danger, provides solace when the sheep are frightened, provides healing when the sheep are injured. A shepherd leads the sheep to fresh water. A shepherd leads the sheep to green pastures so that they can find sustenance and rest. And so the relationship of a shepherd to sheep is one of compassionate watch care on the part of the shepherd and one of necessary dependence on the part of the sheep. It's for this reason that sheep develop a bond with a shepherd. A sheep can actually recognize the voice of a shepherd. In fact, there are times where maybe a shepherd comes into town and his flock along with other flocks may be together in one field and there would be a gatekeeper there who would keep watch over those. And when the shepherd had a good night's sleep and came back out to gather his flock, he could come to that gate and he could simply call out his sheep and his sheep would all separate from the other flocks and would follow him having recognized his voice. Sheep, recognize, uh, sheep develop a bond with their shepherd. A flock has a sense of safety and belonging when it comes to their shepherd, and unease and distress when separated from their shepherd. The nature of sheep means that sheep are most likely to thrive and to survive under the watch care of a caring shepherd. And so God is the divine shepherd. We talked a little bit about sheep. Well, who are the sheep? If God is the divine shepherd, then who are the sheep? Well, in a very special way, in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, God's sheep were who? The Jews. God's chosen people. And so Psalm 79, 13, But we are your people. We, your people, the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will count your praise. Psalm 95, 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. 
Psalm 100, verse 3, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. You might hear somebody bandy about the term sheep as kind of like an insult. For those who belong to the Lord, it's not an insult. It's a term of comfort. Ownership. Lord, we belong to you. You watch over us as your special people. The Jews were God's covenant people in the Old Testament. As we're going to see a little bit later, the covenant people under the new covenant would include both Jews and Gentiles. That special covenant relationship meant that the Jews were uniquely the sheep of God's pasture and the recipients of his loving shepherd-like watch care. Incredible privileges. And that wasn't lost on the Jews. Psalm 74, 1. Oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Lord, we belong to you. You own us. You, you bought us with a heavy price, and so care for us. They're appealing to the shepherd-sheep relationship. And so what we learn is that when the Lord commits himself to a covenant relationship, and this is very applicable for all of us this morning who are Christians, when we learn, what we learn is that when the Lord commits himself to a covenant relationship, he commits himself to love and care for his people like a shepherd cares for sheep. He provides and protects and guides. He leads and corrects and recovers. He loves and relates and satisfies. Consequently, those under his watch care experience comfort and security and rest along with a host of other benefits. To summarize, the sheep are God's covenant people. They are those with whom the Lord has entered a special relationship featuring a unique watch care. And as we're going to see clearly a little bit later, that flock includes all of us who are believers as well. If you're a believer this morning, you are a beneficiary of the new covenant. You are part of God's covenant people, and as, as such, you are part of God's pasture. And so all that we say about God's loving watch care over a sheep applies to you and to, and to me. Now, the Scripture is clear that God is the shepherd over his covenant people. What's also quite clear and quite surprising, and this is going to eventually get us to our topic of eldership, is that the Lord would eventually call men to join him in his shepherding and would actually delegate the task of providing loving oversight over his covenant people to men. And I think we can refer to these individuals as shepherds, sure, but more precisely as under-shepherds, under-shepherds. Consider Moses. After Pharaoh ordered the death of all the Hebrew children, there was a Levite woman who found herself pregnant. She kept her child for about three months, couldn't hide the child anymore, was afraid that she'd be found out. So she takes her child, puts him in a little basket, and kind of entrusts that child to the providence of God on the river. Pharaoh's daughter comes, pulls that child out, calls his name Moses, which means drawn out, raises him as her own. Moses grows up, yes, in a stately life, but understands his identity as a Jew. And so when he goes out one day in his adult life and sees an aggressive Egyptian beating a Jewish man, Moses steps in and he kills the aggressor, buries the body. But then he gets found out. And so he flees Egypt and he ends up in the land of Midian. What's the very first scene we see of Moses after he flees from Egypt? We find Moses at a well. And when he's at that well, some women come who are keepers of sheep. The women come, they're there to water the flocks of their father Jethro. And there's a problem because there's other aggressive shepherds that would drive these women away. So Moses steps in and saves these women and then waters 
their flocks. And so the very first thing we see Moses doing when he leaves the stately life of Egypt is tending sheep. And even opposing those who are the aggressive shepherds. Very interesting. Later on, what we find is that as Moses is there in the land of Midian, he marries the daughter of Jethro, the priest of Midian. Meanwhile, in Egypt, things are getting worse and worse. God's people are being enslaved. They're crying out to the Lord. They want to be uh, rescued from that slavery. And according to Exodus chapter 2, the Lord hears them and then puts in motion a plan to draw them out of Egypt. Now, the Lord sets in motion a plan to rescue his people from slavery in Egypt. That plan would include entrusting Moses with the task of leaving Midian and going back to Egypt and leading those people to freedom. Now, take a look at what Moses was doing when the Lord calls him to go to Egypt and to lead his people out in Exodus chapter 3. Now, Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire and of, uh, out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. What was Moses doing? From the stately life in Egypt to the shepherd's life in Midian, Moses has become a keeper of sheep. And it's there, uh, as Moses is keeping the flock, that God calls him and really calls him to go back into Egypt to lead his people. From the first moments at the well in Midian to the wilderness of Horeb, the Lord was training Moses as a keeper of sheep and preparing him for a much greater calling. Moses had learned lessons as a shepherd about providing and protecting and about guiding. He he, he had learned these things. The Lord has trained him up for a very specific purpose so that then he would go back to Egypt and lead God's covenant people out just like a shepherd might lead sheep. And if it wasn't clear to Moses at that point that his calling was to shepherd God's people, it would be very clear in the events that happen next in Exodus chapter 4. Make sure you look at this on the screen. Exodus chapter 4, verse 1 through 5. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. I can't go to Egypt. This is the greatest superpower the world has ever known up to that point. I can't go into Egypt. They're not going to listen to me. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, a staff. What kind of staff is Moses holding at this point? This is a shepherd's staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it. And it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Moses, I'm going to do great miracles for you. And this is evidence of it. And he tells Moses, that shepherd of the sheep, the staff in your hand will be the sign of my power and my presence. That staff that Moses used to guide and to catch and to recover sheep, the the, the staff that he used and he employed it against predators of the sheep, the Lord says, that's going to be a sign and a signal to you that my power and presence is with you. And so when Moses resisted God's call to go and to rescue his people, The Lord illustrated that power and presence through the staff in Moses' hand. You say, well, that's incidental, not a big deal. Well, Exodus chapter 4, verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, And take in your hand the staff in which you shall do the signs. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace, 
And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And what does it say? And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Oh, Moses, Moses, what are you doing? You've just left the sheep. You've been given a greater call from God, yet you're carrying your shepherd's staff with you. Moses is beginning to understand that the call that God has put on his life is to go and to shepherd God's people. And so Moses marched into the world's greatest superpower with nothing but a shepherd's staff and the assurance that he was called by God to lead God's people. Moses had been called by the Lord to be an under-shepherd. The rest of the story is very familiar. Moses goes in. He's rebuffed by Pharaoh. Pharaoh finally relents when the death of the firstborn comes and the Passover is instituted. Moses comes out, and he leads hundreds of thousands of Jews out of Egypt. And picture it. Picture the masses of people fleeing Egypt with Moses before them. Moses has a shepherd's staff in his hand. He leads the flock of God's covenant people away from danger danger, through tumultuous waters, through the wilderness, ultimately to the mount of God at Sinai. Along the way and afterwards, Moses would find himself responsible for protecting and providing and guiding God's people protecting them from enemies, providing food and water for their survival, guiding them in the direction the Lord would have them to go. The picture's clear. This is a potent image of Moses leading the people out of Egypt as a shepherd leading sheep. And again, that wasn't lost on the Jews because Psalm 77, 20 says, you led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. Psalm 78, 52, then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them to safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. So along the way, Moses would learn that shepherding people was a lot more difficult than shepherding sheep. Constant complaining. The desire to go back to Egypt. Lust for idols. Resistance to his leadership. But Moses would also develop a compassionate care for those with whom he was entrusted. His care would drive them to intercede for them on multiple occasions, even at one point offering to God, Lord, punish me for their sins. Willingness to personally sacrifice for their survival. So how does Moses come to understand his role? Put it this way. Did Moses come to understand his role over God's people as that of an under-shepherd, under the chief shepherd? Yes. Numbers chapter 27, verse uh, 15, as Moses comes to the end of his life, he prays to the Father and says, Lord, provide another man to lead. And he says this, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. Moses knew exactly who he was. He knew exactly what his role was, and he did not want the people to be left without a leader. So, Lord, please provide them with another shepherd. The Lord does provide another shepherd. Provides Joshua. Joshua then, in Numbers 27, is invested with the same authority that Moses had, which shows us again, according to Numbers 27, 18, that shepherding includes the exercise of authority. After Moses, after Joshua, the Lord appoints a line of consecutive judges. If you know your Bible... And uh, that line of consecutive judges also were under shepherds. First Chronicles 17.6, In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to, be sh- to shepherd my people? 
saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? That's a response to David. David wants to build the temple. But the point is, God refers to the judges as shepherds. Ultimately, uh, under the judges, Israel begins to kind of chafe against the idea that they're different from all the other nations. They're not happy with their theocratic system. They want a king. They demand a king. The Lord relents, and he gives them Saul. Saul was an unmitigated disaster, just as the Lord had predicted. But then God, in his mercy, sees the suffering of his people under King Saul, and then he provides for them another king, a king who would be a king after his own heart. This king would lovingly provide and protect and guide God's people. Now, with those characteristics in mind, yes, I'm talking really fast because I'm looking at the clock and we're in trouble. Uh, With those characteristics in mind as to what a leader of God's people ought to be, what do you think we would find this new king doing who the Lord would anoint as the provider and protector and guide of his people? What do you think we'd find him doing when the Lord called him? For Samuel 16, then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he is keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. That's David. And so the Lord says to Jesse, it's, uh, none of your sons here are who I am choosing to be king. And Samuel says, you have any other sons? Yeah, well, just David, but he's out keeping the sheep. He's a shepherd. David, the future king, was a shepherd boy. Like Moses, he had learned what it meant to provide for and protect and guide the flock. He knew what it was to bind the wounded and recover the wandering, to nurture the sick. He knew firsthand what it was to have a flock dependent upon him for food and water and safety. He knew the necessity of a tender care and relationship with the sheep. He knew what it was to pick up a slingshot and endanger himself uh, by uh, taking on the predators of the sheep. This was exactly the training the Lord wanted for his king. This would be a king after the Lord's own heart. The psalmist says of the Lord's choice of David as king in Psalm 78, He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought uh, him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Now, David obviously saw personal lapses because of his own sin, even falling into serious sin. Yet he maintained the heart of a shepherd. We see an occasion in 2 Samuel chapter 24 where because of David's sin, God's wrath is being poured out upon the Jews. And David sees this and he prays to the Lord and he says this, Behold, I have sinned and I have done wickedly, but these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and against my father's house. And there you see David's shepherd's heart. Lord, I don't want to see the people suffer. Please turn your wrath and your judgment against me, but let the sheep go. This compassionate, self-sacrificial spirit of David was a spirit forged among the flocks. He brought his shepherd's heart from the fields and into the throne room. In other words, David's experience as a shepherd boy prepared him to be a faithful under-shepherd in service to the great shepherd of Israel. Now, despite David's failures... His reign as, we're going to call him shepherd king. His reign as shepherd king became the archetype for every faithful king who would come after him. If a future king were to please the Lord in ruling over his people, he too would have to possess the tender heart of a shepherd. In fact, the Lord promised David that one day, the pattern established by his reign as shepherd king would be perfectly fulfilled by one of his descendants, a future Davidic king 
who would be a perfect shepherd, who would lead the flock of God's covenant people exactly the way the divine shepherd would lead his people. That promise, however, would have to wait. Sadly, the history of Israel following David is not a good one. Solomon comes. Ultimately, the kingdom is divided into the north and the south. Uh, sin, immorality, injustice, immorality. God brings judgment against the north, northern kingdom and southern kingdom. Northern kingdom is taken away into Assyrian captivity. The southern kingdom doesn't seem to learn anything uh, from their northern brothers who are led into captivity, and so they too find themselves in Babylonian captivity. Dur- during these times of Israel's religious apostasy and social injustice and moral depravity, God, however, sent some prophets. Go and preach to my people. Uh, preach repentance, preach judgment, yes. But what we learn from these prophets is that much of the blame for Israel's apostasy, much of the blame for Israel's fall, were they culpable? Yes. The individuals are culpable? Yes. But much of the responsibility for their fall actually laid at the feet of their religious and civil leaders. These are those whom the Lord refers to through Jeremiah as their shepherds. Jeremiah 13. Lift up your eyes and see those who come from the north. Where's the flock that was given you? Your beautiful flock. And there he's referring to Jerusalem and all the civil and religious leaders. Where's the flock that I entrusted to you? My stewards, my under-shepherds who have been entrusted with my people. What he's saying is they've been scattered. Where are they? These leaders were given charge over God's flock to provide and protect and guide just as the Lord would. Yet they abdicated those responsibilities. And now they faced a reckoning. That's the nature of the relationship between a steward and master, under-shepherd and shepherd. There's accountability, and they're going to have to give an answer. Jeremiah 10, verse 21, the Lord says, For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered, and all their flock is scattered. The indictment continues, Jeremiah 23, Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherd who care for my people, you scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you've not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you. For your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. The tragedy of the fall of Israel is that the responsibility for their demise did not come by the hand of foreign powers, but by their own leaders. To retain the metaphor, the sheep were not scattered by predators, but the sheep were scattered by their own shepherds. There was no tender care, no gentle guidance, no compassionate provision, no vigilant protection. Instead, the shepherds themselves scattered the flock. As is apparent, uh, this is serious. These are serious indictments. The Lord does not take such sin lightly. There's a greater accountability to those who have been entrusted with the care of his people. That accountability brings great judgment And so these are shepherds. And I hope all along the way you understand that eventually we're going to be talking about elders. And I hope you're relating this. These men were called to exemplify godliness and embody the shepherd-like care of God himself. These were to devote themselves to the advancement of the people, the people's spiritual health and physical protection and material provision. These shepherds were to be moved with compassion toward the needs of the people, just like Moses and David. They were to give themselves an intercession, pleading the case of the people before God. 
they were to exemplify godliness, thus leading the people into righteous living. Like good shepherds, they were to be willing to even make personal sacrifice for the well-being of the Lord's flock. All of this remains true today for any who would claim to be shepherds or elders. Instead of the tender, compassionate under, uh, instead of being tender, compassionate under shepherds over the flock which belonged to God, the Bible says they became lords of the flock. We won't read it, but in Jeremiah chapter 25, the Lord condemns them for that very purpose. I entrusted you with the people and you became lords over them, dominating, authoritarian. By the way, have you experienced that, any of you? You've been in churches before where you had men in positions of elders or shepherds who seem to think they're lords of the flock? Okay, we're going to read it. Jeremiah 25. Wail, you shepherds, and cry out and roll in ashes, you lords of the flock. For the days of your slaughter and dispersion have come, and you shall fall like a choice vessel. No refuge will remain for the shepherds, nor escape for the lords of the flock. A voice, the cry of the shepherds, and the wail of the lords of the flock. For the Lord is laying waste their pasture, and the peaceful folds are devastated because of the fierce anger of the Lord. The Lord does not take kindly to those who claim to be shepherds, victimizing the sheep. Ezekiel and Ezekiel 34. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, even to the shepherds, thus says the Lord God, Ah, shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. Can we just stop there and say, if you come from a religious background where you have men in positions of leadership who are harsh, what does this tell you? There's no biblical mandate for an authoritarian spiritual leadership. And so if you've been hurt by any of that, please understand that's not born out of Scripture. That's a violation of Scripture. And you can see the fierce wrath of God against such men. And theirs is a great accountability and great judgment. And so Ezekiel 34 continues, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek them. So the God of heaven is the great shepherd of Israel. And when he sees his people scattered, he's moved with compassion towards them. To see his people neglected and abused by the very under shepherds who are charged with their care grieves his heart greatly. And just understand, if you are that type of victim who've has faced that at the hand of those harsh so-called shepherds. Shepherds, the Lord is compassionate towards you and merciful towards you. This is enough to make those shepherds the enemies of the Lord. Ezekiel chapter 34 continues, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become a prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there's no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths that they may not be food for them. The Lord did judge Israel and their shepherds. Captivity did come, Assyrian captivity, Babylonian captivity. But the prophets, as they're pronouncing judgment upon the people and upon the shepherds, also always brought messages of hope. 
They look past the captivity to a time where God's people would be freed and they would be restored to the land. The interesting thing about those prophecies, however, is they were not all perfectly fulfilled when Israel ultimately did come out of captivity, which helps us see that there was yet a later fulfillment coming. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives and brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. He's saying, as much as you've looked back to the Exodus, there's coming an even greater Exodus so that you'll forget about the first one when you see the magnitude of the restoration that comes after the captivity. And there's a promise there. The Lord says, The day is coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a descendant of David who will be king. These promises revolve around a coming figure who will take up David's throne. And what was that throne? A throne of a shepherd king. When that captivity did finally end, the people are restored to the land. But there's a clear problem. They rebuild the temple, but it pales in comparison to the previous one. It was actually kind of sad. The temple pales in comparison to the former one, and the people, frankly, physically were back in the land, but their hearts had not returned to the Lord. This promise of full restoration, where the people are going to be rescued from captivity, there's going to be spiritual revival, ah, you see whimpers of it, but it really doesn't seem to reflect the magnitude of the promises. What that shows us is that the fulfillment of those promises, though fulfilled partially at this time, still look forward to future fulfillments. So what about the promised Davidic king, that shepherd king, that perfect shepherd who would lead the flock of God's covenant people? What about the promised second exodus that would be of such a magnitude that you forgot about the exodus out of Egypt? The fullness was yet to be fulfilled. Now, as the Lord lamented the failure of his under-shepherds, he made a stunning promise. He foretold of a time where he would come and he would actually lead his people directly. He's delegated under-shepherds, the under-shepherds have failed, and so he says, I'm going to come and I myself, I'm going to search for my sheep and I'm going to bring them back in. Ezekiel 34 verse 11. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered on the day of clouds and thick darkness, and I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land, and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land, In our rich pasture, they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. He's saying, I'll do it directly. You know what? I'm going to take care of this myself. He's going to supply the provision and protection and guidance. All that was denied by the wicked under shepherds, he's going to rectify. But how is he going to do this? How is the Lord going to directly shepherd his covenant people? What is that going to look like? Well, interestingly... After describing how he himself would gather his scattered sheep and bring them into their own land, he says this, 
and I will make them one nation to the, in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them, and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms. He's saying, on one hand, I'm going to shepherd my sheep directly. On the other hand, he says, I'm going to put a king over them. Well, how's that going to work? Well, Ezekiel chapter 37. And there we see how God can reign and how his reign could be seen as a direct rule while also featuring a reigning king. Ezekiel 37, verse 24. My servant David shall be king over them, and they shall all have, all have one shepherd. They shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. They shall dwell in the land that I gave to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. If you don't know the Bible very well, understand that David's long dead at this point. This is talking about a descendant of David. It says, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them, and I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst forevermore. The day is coming when a descendant of David will come and shepherd my people directly, and he will bring about a new everlasting covenant. My dwelling place shall be with them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst forever. There's coming a time when I will be their God, and they will be my people, will never be separated again. My presence will be in their midst forever. It's going to be under and within the context of an everlasting, a new covenant that's brought about by a descendant of David who will sit on the throne as shepherd king. Who could that be? This is a promised Davidic king who will so perfectly execute the office of shepherd that the Lord can say, I'm shepherding my people directly. There's going to be no disconnect between the heavenly and the earthly shepherd. This can only be explained through the incarnation of the Messiah. The Lord himself will shepherd his people because the Lord himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, would assume the throne of David, who was the archetypal shepherd king. Fittingly, when John the Baptist, remember we talked about this in the early chapters of John, when John the Baptist uh, describes himself, what does he say? He says, I am a voice crying in the wilderness. Remember that? And what was he quoting when John the Baptist said, I am a voice crying in the wilderness? He was quoting Isaiah chapter 40. You know what comes after? In that same context when John says, I am the voice crying in the wilderness? Isaiah chapter 40 verse 9. Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with them, and his recompense before him. John is saying, I'm the one announcing the coming of God. I am the voice crying in the wilderness from Isaiah 40. But then he says of God in Isaiah 40, He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. What John is doing is he's announcing the coming of God himself, who's going to shepherd his people directly. And who is he actually introducing when he cries that out? Jesus Christ. Through Jesus, God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in his arms. He'll carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Jesus is the promised Davidic descendant who would ascend David's throne and rule forever. He is the perfect earthly shepherd king who would shepherd God's covenant people exactly as the Lord himself would shepherd. He could do this because in his coming, God himself had come. The great shepherd of Israel had come in the flesh. The people began to realize this very early. 
so that when the wise men came and they inquired of Herod as to where uh, the Messiah would be born, and, and Herod asked the scribes, uh, what does the Scripture say? They found the book of Micah. In Matthew chapter 2, it says what? As they quote Micah, In Bethlehem, O Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, uh, Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come whom? A ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. We know the Messiah is going to be born in Bethlehem because the book of Micah says that that's where the shepherd king will arise. It's fitting then that Matthew presents the earthly ministry of Jesus in this way. We're going to end here. Set the stage for next week. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, the incarnate divine shepherd, comes, ascends to the throne of the Davidic shepherd king. And naturally then, when we see his earthly ministry, he has a shepherd-like compassion upon the masses. His entire earthly ministry is that of healing, words, and wonders of mercy, as he has that shepherd-like compassion upon the lost. The compassion of a loving shepherd is inflamed when he sees wandering sheep. And so, too, is the compassion of Jesus inflamed when he looked upon the lost. So, in conclusion, in God's providence, he inspired the Scriptures to be... In God's providence, he allowed the Scriptures to be inspired, spanning earthly history. He allowed the Scriptures to be penned during real history, in the midst of real cultures. And he chose for his word to be inspired at a time where shepherding was common knowledge, a common profession. And it's no wonder, I I tried to think of a modern equivalent to a shepherd in order to describe the relationship that God has with his people, and I'm yet to think of one. Such a powerful metaphor, and the Lord allows his word to be penned at a time where that metaphor is readily at hand. There's really no other metaphor which so aptly captures the relationship of God to his people or the relationship that God would have under shepherds to have to his people. And so the nature of God's covenant people is such that they need leaders. They need individuals who will guide them into righteousness, protect them from spiritual predators. Recover them when they stray. Otherwise, exercise a persistent, loving watch care over them. God's people need leaders who will take up a delegated responsibility from God himself to lead his people, just as God would lead them. In other words, they need under-shepherds. So, as we as a church go forward and we think about future elders, maybe there are some individuals here this morning. The Lord would call you to be an elder to be an under-shepherd. As you consider whether or not you desire that and are qualified for such an office, remember that an elder is called to be a shepherd. A tender heart, a quick compassion, a spirit of self-sacrifice, and a persistent vigilance are all necessary. Also remember that the Lord is the shepherd of Israel and elders are merely under-shepherds, just stewards. To be an elder is to be a steward, not an owner is to be a loving overseer of the sheep, not a lord of the flock. Further, consider that the Lord is opposed to those who claim to be the Lord's under-shepherds, only to use that position to benefit themselves. 
In other words, because the office bears tremendous responsibility, it also can incur great judgment. Finally, as you continue to think over the Lord's chosen metaphor of shepherd and sheep, remember that each of God's under-shepherds is himself first a sheep. Before Jacob and Moses and David could shepherd God's people, they first had to recognize that God was their shepherd, and they first and foremost belonged to his sheep. Let's pray. Dear Father, as we as a church continue to grow, as the flock increases in size, we pray that you will provide qualified men, that you'll equip, that you put in the heart of these men to shepherd. Help us as we consider eldership to have a biblical vision as to what spiritual leadership is. Pray that you'd help us to hold high the biblical standards and qualifications. And Lord, we pray that you will Protect us. Lord, we see stories all the time of men who claim to be spiritual authorities and positions of spiritual stewardship who abuse the sheep. Authoritarian, harsh, immoral, abusive, capitalizing upon the sheep for their own benefit. Lord, we pray that you'd protect us. Give us faithful men. Leaders who will love your people the way that you love your people who will provide for them and protect them and guide them just as you would. Give us men who view that role as a stewardship from you, which bears accountability. And uh, Lord, we just pray you provide for us that way. Help those who are already elders to maintain these qualifications and to continue to grow and to mature. And then Lord, we just pray that you'll remind us that you are the divine shepherd. Help us to rest or to take advantage of the rest that you have given us. Lord, you lead us by still waters, you lead us into green pastures, you bring rest to our souls, you restore our souls. So help us to understand who you are. Those who maybe whose view of you has been marred through past experience with abusive shepherds, help them to not project that upon you, but help them to understand who you are as that tender, compassionate shepherd caring for your sheep. And then, Lord, help us all to recognize that we are sheep of your pasture. Uh, help us to keep our eyes upon you. Uh, seeking your leadership and your guidance. And then again, help us to uh, find comfort in the peace that's offered to us as those who belong to your pasture. We thank you for this. And again, bless the coming weeks as we further continue uh, looking at these topics and uh, form us as a church. Uh, Continue to bless. Lord, we thank you for this and for your mercy. It's in Christ's name. Amen.